Hey y'all, I'm Sam Landis. And I'm Rachel Garbus. Welcome to episode four of the Out Down South podcast. We are co-founders of the Atlanta LGBTQ History Project and co-hosts of the Out Down South podcast. Each episode, you'll hear from a Southern LGBTQ history maker in their own words. Today's episode features Rabbi Joshua Lesser, an LGBTQ plus activist and Rabbi Emeritus at Congregation Bet Haverim, which is a reconstructionist synagogue founded by Jewish LGBTQ plus Atlantans that welcomes all Jews and their loved ones. Uh, Rabbi Josh is also the founder of Sojourn, the Southern Jewish Resource Network for Gender and Sexual Diversity, which promotes inclusion of LGBTQ plus people in Jewish communities. And he co-edited Torah Queries, a weekly commentary on the Torah, the Jewish religious text with an LGBTQ plus lens. Uh, Josh and I recorded his interview first at Georgia State University back in 2021, and then we met again later on Zoom for the second part of his interview because like many Jews, myself included, Josh had a lot to say, and we were so grateful. I knew Josh from attending services at Bet Haverim in the past, but it was really a pleasure to sit down with him and hear more about his life. Um, we wanted to share Rabbi Josh's story with you this week because it's Passover. It's the Jewish holiday that commemorates the Jews' escape from slavery in Egypt and celebrates freedom, rebirth, and the renewal of spring. Passover is my favorite Jewish holiday. Hello, matzah balls and brisket. Uh, but its story is also still really impactful today. When we read from the Haggadah, which is the story of Passover, we don't only reflect on the years the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt, but we also acknowledge the enslavement of other people throughout history, the forms of enslavement that still exist today, and we remind ourselves that all of our thriving and our suffering is bound up in the thriving and the suffering of everyone else on earth. So today, LGBTQ plus Southerners are under assault from a litany of bills and laws that want to restrict our freedom, our rights, and our ability to thrive. But we're not the only community under threat. In recent years, we've seen a rise of anti-Semitism, anti-Asian hate, anti-Black racism, and attacks on reproductive rights, to name a few. It's easy to get wrapped up in the suffering of our own communities, but it's so important to remember that overcoming that suffering is something we have to do together. I think Passover, which overlaps with the Christian holiday of Easter, is a really important time to remember that this is a fight we're all in together. And as a gay Jewish Southerner dedicated to social justice, Josh Lesser knows firsthand the importance of standing together against bigotry. And that's a message he's worked tirelessly to promote in his work and in his life. It's really incredibly heartbreaking and upsetting to see the rise of anti-Semitism that has seemed to grow in the past couple years. And I'm really glad that we get the opportunity to talk about these issues. Also, happy Passover. Thank you, Sam. Do you want to learn how to say it in Hebrew? I'd love to. Okay, get ready. It's Chag Pesach Sameach. Okay, we may have to take it slower. <laughs> Chag Pesach Sameach. Okay, cool. <laughs> like a pro. And uh, happy Easter. Thanks. <laughs> well, I loved meeting and hearing from Rabbi Lesser at our exhibition opening. He's so well-spoken and has, and has had such an interesting life. I'm looking forward to hearing more about his story. So where are we starting, Rachel? So, just a little bit of background. Rabbi Josh was born in upstate New York, but his family moved to Atlanta when he was a baby, so the South has always been home. He grew up in a Jewish family and attended Hebrew schools as a small child, and he loved practicing the Jewish rituals and celebrating Jewish holidays. But in elementary school, his family moved to Charleston, South Carolina, where they were one of the only Jewish families around. So Josh experienced anti-Semitism for the first time. He actually came home with swastikas drawn on his notebooks from the other students, but he didn't even realize what they meant. 
But rather than shy away from his Jewish identity, this experience actually affirmed his commitment to his faith and to his own identity. At the same time, some of his experiences with Orthodox Judaism and its extremely rigid rules uh, left him reckoning with the tenets of his faith. So even as a young person, Josh was always questioning the world around him. And that's a trait that really shapes who he is today. Anyways, he arrives at Northwestern University as a very curious 17-year-old college student, still figuring out who he is and his place in the world. He's just figured out that he's gay, but he hasn't fully come to terms with that aspect of his identity. So he finds a very creative, very iconically Josh solution to navigate this situation. Let's take a listen. A friend of mine, my sophomore year, asked me to, he was a freshman, asked me to go brush with him. And I was so anti-fraternity and, and he wanted to check out the football fraternity because he um, had rushed, uh, he had played football in high school and had injured himself and couldn't play in college. So we went and um, I, I thought it was funny. Like I was just like, okay, I'm gonna go for the sociological experiment, which was a lot of my life as a college student. Mm -hmm. um, and so, there, there were some fundamental ways where um, I was like, these guys are so interesting to me. Like, I don't really know people like this. Like, jocks who, most of them are from um, Illinois, and um, they were neither pretentious around their education, which most people at Northwestern were, and none of them tended to be um, affluent, and so this was not a snobbish fraternity on that end. And, and, so, and I felt like most of Northwestern, you were either an intellectual snob or a wealthy snob, and it was hard, you know, sometimes both, um, but it was hard to find people who were kind of down to earth, or at least that was my, and I felt like, wow, these guys are really down to earth. They invited me to come back, and I was like, oh, no, no, I just accompanied my friend tonight, and all of a sudden there was this rush of uh, movement, and they're like, can you just stay 10 more minutes? I'm like, sure, and they come back, and they give me a bid that night. So I talked to my parents, and they're like, absolutely not. Like, you're anti-fraternity. Why would you even consider this? I'm like, it's the football fraternity. This is hysterical. Um, and they're like, no. They also didn't want me to work through college, and I was already working. Um, so I had my own money. And so I, um, I told that. So I disregarded my parents' kind of thing. I was like, I'll pay for this myself. And, um, and I joined. And I think... I would say more, I know that I joined because I felt like if I could get through this experience, if I could be in the hyper-toxic, I didn't have that word then, but hyper-toxic, to like, while they were not pretentious, this was a toxic masculine kind of house. <laughs> um, and so I was like, if I can get through this experience, being tr true to who I am, that I would be able to succeed in life being closeted mm -hmm. and not having anybody know. And so, like, I was the philanthropy chair. Surprise, surprise. I got my fraternity to march. I got, not my fraternity, members of my fraternity to march in the Take Back the Night march. So, like, there were ways where I was, like, I, I wasn't pretending to be one of them. They used to call me, since this was around, um, uh, I went to school at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, and so they would call me this is like in 1989, they would call me a man of the 90s before the 90s had started. And they would ask me about my friendships with women um, to potentially connect them. And so, um, you know, and, and 
I ended up having this entire double life in Chicago where I was going out to bars, I was dancing at Berlin and at what was Christopher Street that then became the manhole and um, side tracks and you know and so I just had this like really bizarrely double life. I was also very actively Jewishly on campus and um, while it's too long of a story to tell, um, I did a lot of Jewish things outside of Hillel because I found the rabbi to be challenging. But the program director reached out to me and said, can you help us reach a larger audience? Would you maybe help us do some surveys? So I worked with her, and what we discovered I was very excited about, which was kind of um, Jewish students really wanting kind of a much larger cultural experience than just kind of religious offerings. And so I liked this vision, and it got me thinking, and I told her I wanted to help implement it, so I started help doing programming there. And then that led me my, my senior year to say, I want to be president. I want to change. I want whoever, like if someone discovered tomorrow that they're Jewish and know really nothing about their identity, I want them to be able to walk in the space and feel welcome and at home. And that was not the way that it was. And that they, it was an Orthodox rabbi who was running it. Um, that he, um, you know, that there'd be other ways where people were accepted. And so I ran for president and much to his chagrin, I won. But in terms of my spirituality, I would often go to the Baha'i Temple, which is in Evanston, and I would walk around their rose gardens just kind of to get my own space. And I walked into the gift shop and I saw they had this cute poster that had all of these children from different cultures around the world. And next to them was the golden rule, according to their faith tradition from that region of the world or what religion they represented. And Judaism was up on top, you know, and Jew, the Jewish golden rule is do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. And then everything kind of followed and you could see this kind of thread through all these religions. So I bought it and I was newly elected. I put it up in my office and the rabbi comes in and he says, you have to take that down. And I was like, why? And he's like, this, it doesn't belong here. I'm like, look, it's the golden rule of every tradition. The first one is, is Jewish and, um, and so he ends up saying, um, I, I just think with all these other faith traditions, it doesn't belong here. And I said, well, the bad news for you is, is that you work for us, the students. I don't work for you. This is my office, and so it's going to stay up. And so that is, was a little bit of the tenor of our relationship. And I'm not as argumentative as I make it sound, but for me it really is this really important thread to kind of understand my rabbinates, you know, all the way, all these formative places. And so um, when I finally graduated, he um, gave me a present. I opened it up, and it was a book called Arguing with God, A Jewish Tradition. After college, Josh heads off to Teach for America in New Orleans. He's thinking he might go to law school, but somehow that just doesn't quite feel right. He's searching for another way to use his skills and to bring his interlocking identities into the social justice movement. He had never considered becoming a rabbi in his family, as in many Jewish families, like mine, you become a lawyer or you become a doctor. Uh, but in the years after college, things start to change for him. And so Hanukkah was very close to Thanksgiving and maybe a week or two later, I brought in my electric frying pan 
and I grated potatoes and made potato pancakes for all of the teachers. And that act of being willing to share myself um, with these teachers made all of the difference. And I went from being an outsider to the community to being an insider. But I think in that moment, it helped me see that my desire to kind of come in and teach for America like was terrible at this time. Like It was all about white saviorism. Our, our motto was the best and the brightest. And so it set us up as being the solution to fixing the problem. And so it's, and you know, and so in part, it was a blessing that Teach for America was not like ensconced in my school and while people knew I was there, it was not such a strong factor. And it really just allowed me to connect with students. And because I was teaching special ed, sadly, it was not seen that I was threatening. Um, it was a new classroom. I didn't take anybody's position. Um, but it helped me realize that if I wanted to make change, I needed to do it from the Jewish perspective and build bridges that way and locate myself in my community and address the issues within my community rather than um, kind of locate myself in the inner city, largely in black and brown communities and say, hey, I'm here, I'm part of, I'm, I'm your solution, which was kind of, where I was directed, and I was like, um, again, in a strange twist, uh, I come home for uh, Christmas break, and that year Hanukkah is very close to Christmas, and so I go to a Hanukkah service at a congregation that was founded here in Atlanta by gays and lesbians, Beit Chavirim, and I attend the service, and I see one of my friends from Yeshiva High School leading the service, Amy Bernstein, who's a rabbi in California. And um, she's this awesome singer. And all of a sudden, I, oh, she announces to the group that she has just gotten into rabbinical school. That's how she starts the service. So the whole service, all of the wheels start turning. And I'm like, oh, I think that what the next step is, is perhaps to become a rabbi. And so I very quickly start looking into applying to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and um, also decide that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be out in every facet of my life. And so that means I need to be out to my parents. And um, I go, I participate shortly, a week before my interview, I participate in the March on Washington that year, the LGBT March on Washington. And um, I participate in an act of protest and CNN follows me just randomly um, as a protester in this protest. And I arrive at some event later that evening and I was like, you're on TV, you're on TV. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, holy crap, my parents watch CNN. Have I just outed myself to my parents? And I hadn't, but it begins accelerating. And I go to my interview and I decide that I'm going to be out of my interview. My essay also kind of led that way because I talked about working. I volunteered with uh, working with people with AIDS and HIV while I was in New Orleans. And that was a lot, a big part of my interview, my essay to rabbinical school. And so, but I'm out in my interview, and then I, um, as a result of my interview, they tell me that I need to work on my Hebrew a little bit, and that if I would consider doing Ulpan or going to Israel for the summer, that I could go to. I, I find to enter school. So I plan to go to Israel. I come home from New Orleans. I'm done with Teach for America. 
I recognize I need to tell my parents. Um, my sister has known for a couple years as kind of an accepting, warm um, person who's been encouraging me, but who also wants me to like celebratory tell my parents over dinner that I'm gay. They're already not happy that I'm going to rabbinical school. It was not the path they imagined for me. Like law school was a little disappointing that I wasn't, for my dad particularly, he was a cardiologist here in Atlanta, but I wasn't going to medical school, but okay. My grandfather was a lawyer, that was acceptable. Um, and just given where my parents kind of felt about Jewish religion, it was just a weird thing for them that I would consider rabbinical school, but you know, I'd always, they were already clear that I was marching to my own drum. And so, um, So I'm leaving for Israel on Sunday, and I have to tell them on this last Shabbat. My sister's like, let's make it a celebration. Right after the Kiddush, you know, we'll do a toast. And I just know that that's not how my parents are going to receive it. And for years and years, I've said, once I tell my parents, they're going to get divorced. And everyone's like, Josh, that's so narcissistic. And I was like, no, it's not really about me. I just, like, I just know this is what's going to happen. And people are like, too much projection. Like, grow up is literally what... Virtually everybody told me. The best that I could do was write my parents a letter, and I left it for them after Shabbat dinner. My sister and I went to an art opening, and um, in the letter, I basically said, since college, there's so much that's happened in my life that you really don't know who I am, and that if this continues much further, we're not gonna have a relationship, and that would be on me, because I've made the choice not to trust you and letting you know what I've been able to tell you, which is that I'm gay. And so if we're not going to have a relationship, that I, I can't live with that being because of me. If that happens, it has to be your choice, that you're choosing not to be in a relationship with me. I know it's not going to be easy to hear this. I will give you time to work this through, but you don't have forever, <laughs> which is a really interesting thing. I'm, and I'm 23 at this point, just to kind of give that, that reference. And so um, I guess, you know, what I'll, what I'll say, and I know that it's really interesting to kind of like get up to starting to be a rabbi for today and not having actually talked about my rabbinate, but um, <clears throat> I think there's just a lot in the formative place, is that um, I came home and my parents um, were nowhere to be seen. And it's very clear to me, and we're, we came home late, so it's like after 10, 10.30. Um, my parents' bedroom's door is locked and the basement door is locked and no one is answering anything that we're saying. So I go to bed realizing this is not good. <clears throat> my father came in and basically woke me up. He had to do rounds in the morning. Woke me up at five something in the morning and just said, I just want to let you know I got your letter. I love you. There's some things that I'm worried about but we can talk about that later but I just wanted to let you know I love you. And then I fell back asleep, woke up, and my mom was gone from the house. My mom does not reappear until shortly before I have to leave for my flight. And she is furious. And now, I have to say, as a premise to this, is that my mom is a huge ally and supporter of the LGBT community, um, and she hates that I tell this story, that it is so part of what has happened. And I think, really, for anybody who might be hopeful for a parent who has a 
hard first reaction that there's really great hope. So I say that in this spirit and as a preamble to what feels really hard to share is that in coming out to, to my, you know, to my mom, um, she comes into the house and she's not talking to me and I'm like, mom, I'm going to Israel. You're really not going to say goodbye. And I kind of poke her enough to where she just lashes out and she was just like, I cannot believe this. Um, you know, like, how could you not tell us? Um, I didn't know. And then two minutes later saying, I've always known um, and I am so upset. You are committing professional suicide. So kind of where she leaned in is that this idea of a gay rabbi in um, 1993 just was not something that she could envision. And really, I didn't have any role models. There were a couple people who had been out at this point, only just a handful of them, but I didn't know of them, and the internet wasn't such that I could research them. There was one book called Twice Blessed that was kind of like the one Jewish thing that truly gave me hope besides having seen this congregation. And so um, I didn't know any of this leadership. And, um, and, and so I knew I was forging something new too, and, but I'm, my fears, like, you know, someone's attacking me, I, and I just yell back at my mom, and I'm like, professional suicide, what are you telling me? That I now need to become a hairstylist because I'm gay? That I need to be a florist? And I start, like, this litany of, like, um, you know, and thank goodness there are great gay people who do these jobs. Uh, you, know, I, you know, for me, it was this kind of flippancy, and, and also this Jewish over-intellectualism of, like, what we value, which, you know, I want to value all of it. Um, and... You know, and, and so she just said, Look, I'm not, I'm not, I can't accept this, I'm not talking to you. And I'm like, you're not gonna hug me to say goodbye? And she's stopped talking and I'm like, look, Syria is bombing Israel as we speak in the north. If something happens to me, you will never forgive yourself. And she wouldn't budge. And it was only until I was in Israel that I received a letter um, from her saying that, no, you said you'd give us time. I needed some time. And, you know, she talked about some steps and that she loves me and that I'm her son. And it began this kind of um, healing. There's so much that I relate to in his coming out experience. It felt very similar to I went through. I think it's really beautiful um, how even when there's negative response from parents when coming out, and though this is not always true, I, I have seen it happen and I think this story is a testament to that, how parents can have a change of heart when they choose love for their kids. Now we come to some of the work Rabbi Josh has done in Atlanta as the former rabbi of Beit Haberim, the founder of Sojourn, and as an indelible presence in the coalition of social justice movements that are so unique to Atlanta. When it comes to aligning Jewish and LGBTQ plus communities, I think probably no one in the city has done more than Joshua Lesser. One of the things I admire so much about him is that he's always committed to building bridges between different kinds of people, getting them to sit at the table together, to really listen to each other. Wherever a door is closed, you know Josh is going to get up and yank it open. And the story of how he opened doors at Beit Haverim really speaks to that part of him. Beit Haverim 
um, had a really interesting founding, and then it had a really personal part in my own journey. And I think in many ways, Beit Chaverim is a uniquely Southern experience. So <clears throat> my understanding, around 1985, um, Congregation Beit Chaverim was not in existence, but there was a group of people who had met each other, mostly gay men, but not exclusively, and they created a social group called Chavirim. Chavirim is the Hebrew for friends. And so it was a friend group. And I think one night over a Passover Seder, which to me has this beautiful resonance because Passover is about exploring, moving from oppression to freedom. This group of people began to reflect that they didn't really need a social group. They had friends. They were sure of the relationships and the connections. But it was Jewish ritual and Jewish spaces that they needed and places that would, from the very start, acknowledge their fullness and authentic self-expression as, and I'll say now, gay, lesbian, bisexual people. We've expanded in terms of being trans and non-binary inclusive. And so when, you know, Beit Chaverim was founded, it really was a disruptive um, force in the Jewish landscape. So much so that when the Atlanta Synagogue Council um, was asked to admit Beit Chaverim uh, into its ranks, they first turned down Beit Chaverim because they didn't have a rabbi. And then when they did have Rabbi Leila Berner come, um, they had a big debate. And how it's told apocryphally, I was not there, I'm still in rabbinical school, is, is that most of the conservative synagogues basically said, look, if, in your tagline, it says serving the gay and lesbian community. If you drop that, maybe we'll consider this, but that feels exclusionary and they were in opposition. And, and, they, and basically when Beit Chaverim said no, they ultimately said that if Beit Chaverim is voted in, these conservative synagogues would leave. And many of the progressive reform rabbis who rallied around Beit Chaverim's inclusion said that if Beit Chaverim isn't allowed to join, they would leave. And so what ended up happening is, is that the Atlanta Synagogue Council ended. And so, um, you know, to to have witnessed, to have been in one community, like I grew up here, and to have witnessed the transformation of having been, there's a psalm that says, the stone that the builder refused has become this place's cornerstone. And so I'm proud to have worked along with the founders of Beit Chaverim to become one of the cornerstones of Jewish Atlanta. In many ways, we've been held up as upholding some of the way, the path forward of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And part of what I was saying earlier about, we did the welcoming from the inside out where we welcome straight folks in, but we also wanted to make sure, and not that we've ever done this perfectly, but expand that to economic diversity. We've been one of the first congregations to have a sliding scale and be really thoughtful about the ways that synagogue membership creates barriers. Single parents, like, so the way that our forms, you know, we often ask, 
more mainstream congregations to consider their forms, which just doesn't always say mother and father. But so we wanted to also embody that, that it didn't, we didn't always have both like The assumption wasn't that every household is a two parent household. We've discovered there are four parent households. There are, you know, there are multiple ways that family exists. So we wanted to bring these values, which was very much in line with the founders of Beit Haverim. You know, if we go back to their intention, they really wanted a place where Jewish spiritual authentic self-expression could be um, had for everybody. And, um, and it was during a time where there wasn't space for LGBT Jews to have this. But once we created a home where LGBT Jews could feel connected, long before I came, straight folks who I would say found themselves on the margins of the Jewish community found a home for a variety of reasons, but they were a small minority. Part of my leadership and in partnership with some lay leadership and lots of communal discussion and debate um, was how we can more intentionally welcome straight folks. And so one of the things, and, and, and to say that we were one of the first synagogues to do this really intentionally, you know, as I mentioned, there was kind of fingers pointing at us from the LGBT Jewish world nationally. But I was saying that I think this is the path of the future, which I believe is happening all over. So in some ways, while Jewish community often thinks that they're guided by what happens in New York and LA, um, in this instance, the South led the way. And I think that's so important. And I think it's because as a Southerner, I have always known that I need more than just my community, that I rely on allies. I learned that as a Jew early on, and I've known that as a queer man. And that to live in the South effectively means to be in respectful, committed coalition with other folks. And that, you know, I often say when I fight for racial justice, without opening my mouth, I'm also advocating and showing up to speak out against anti-Semitism and homophobia just by who I am and who I've been representing, you know, in some ways. Rather than this zero-sum game of just thinking that we're only ever one issue at any given time. And I think that here in Atlanta that we've really demonstrated that. And so to help take what was a really powerful, potent founding vision and bring it into the fore has been incredibly um, important and vibrant. Part of the growth of Beit Chavirim that I've been so proud of is that it wasn't so easy to welcome from the inside out. I, you know, I said to the community where there was some fear that we would lose our identity because so many straight people were joining the community at that time. And I said that I know that it takes some courage to open our doors this way. However, what this will allow is that there's gonna be more children. The other thing about Beit Chavirim that's unique is, is that alongside Shar Zahav, which is the LGBTQ plus synagogue in San Francisco, our Hebrew school started around the same time. I don't know whose was quite first, but many LGBT founded synagogues did not have Hebrew schools because there were so few children. 
And Beit Chavirim has always had a handful of children, you know, but some of them were really from the first straight members that joined. Um, not so many people in the 80s in the LGB community were having kids. There were some, but not many. And so, you know, already in the early 2000s, I was very aware we had a, a small and growing community school, and this is what was making it possible for people with children to join all across the spectrum. But it really allowed straight families who had kids to consider that this might be their community in ways that they couldn't have if we weren't committed to educating their children. So that that decision was the founders, you know, and that was the first step of welcoming. But as it began to expand and as we I felt needed to be responsible, what I said is that as we educate children, imagine a world where children are growing up, seeing, living, immersed in a synagogue where their sexual orientation and how they express their gender will be celebrated that they know that who they are from the very beginning is loved by their spiritual community. How many of us in this congregation have experienced that? We're almost all here because of the rejection that we felt. That's why this place was needed to be founded. I personally would hope that we would be willing to give up some of our comfort for the tikkun olam, for the true repair that could happen in our world to be a congregation where children grow up not being afraid to embrace who they are. So why I say that that was prophetic is because all of these years later, there are so many kids who are coming out as queer. And there are parents who have been supported. These kids have seen their rabbi as a gay man. Like it just has created an entirely different vision some of our straight kids have been some of the most vocal allies in their communities because people that they love and people who have cared about them, who have shown up for them, are part of the LGBT community. And so that to me means that we've been able to see that that choice has created a generation of change makers. You know, when we feel the weight of the world and the pendulum swinging, you know, this year, um, we've had the largest number of bills introduced against LGBT folks all across the country. And while that has like, felt like a fist around my heart, what helps me unclench my hand is, is that I know that there's a generation of kids, not that they're responsible. Yeah, like, I don't like the rhetoric of like, oh, we're gonna put this on the next generation to fix this. Like, I'm still walking side by side. I'm learning from them, I'm teaching them, but I know that they're showing up as incredible allies and people who did not have to go through the same treacherous journey of coming out that, that I did and that so many of the founders of Beit Chaverin and people who participated in the early days of the Rainbow Center had to. We've created an easier way. And so the conversations that I often have with parents is, now that my child is identifying as non-binary, what do I do about sleepovers, right? You know, like these are really like, how do I navigate the practical world rather than rabbi, is my child a sinner and do I need to disown them? Or even so ashamed, you know, it reminds me that some of the first straight families that joined Beit Chaverim 
was because their children, particularly their sons, had AIDS or HIV, and they could not talk about it, or when they did talk about it with their rabbis, they were not warmly embraced or treated with care and dignity. And so some of the closest and strongest supporters of my early days were these parents of people who had lost their sons to AIDS and HIV, um, and really appreciated that the vision and perhaps wanted for their children what we're now creating. So to see that come to fruition um, is probably one of the, the best blessings. You know, I think about Moses, um, you know, God forbid not to compare, compare myself to Moses, but you know, in Moses's story, he doesn't get to see the promised land. And, um, and I don't know, you know, I don't think we've arrived at a promised land, but I have gotten more than a glimmer. Like I have actually seen the world change by um, what I've been able to do. Like, I feel like how humbling that I've been able to be a part of this change and a part of a community that has fostered this change. And I'm healthy and vibrant and you know, have the possibility and I, you know, the great thing is I'm marrying a lot of our children, you know, who have grown up, you know, I'm now officially old. So I get to be at these weddings of kids, some of who I did their baby namings and certainly did their bar and bat mitzvahs, their breed mitzvahs. And, um, and so I feel like I'm seeing a promised land starting to emerge. And it's that kind of hopefulness in a time where we are also having lots of messages of um, dire times that I can actually drink from the cup of what being a part of a community like the one that I had the privilege of serving has enabled. I really love that we get to hear from Rabbi Lesser after Senator Jackson's episode. You know, the similarities in their stories, despite having such contrasting identities, both have such interesting journeys with their faith. And what I find especially beautiful is how both are so motivated by their faith to create a more just, equitable, and inclusive world. Yeah, I agree. I grew up in a culturally Jewish, not very religious household. Like we can say the prayers in Hebrew, but I have no idea what they actually mean. Um, I didn't meet people of genuine faith until I moved to the South when I was 23. And I really expected to be turned off by that because there's a real distrust of religion where I'm from. But that's not what happened at all. These days, I'm genuinely in awe of the way religion can be a power for good, the way it can heal communities, bring people together, and be a force that moves the arc of the moral universe. I think Kim Jackson and Josh Lesser embody the best of what religion can be. And their stories help us understand how Christianity and Judaism can and should be places where LGBT plus people are welcomed and celebrated. Especially when we have so many examples of people using their religious beliefs to force their own ways on others in history and in this current moment. I think Kim and Josh show us a different way to be people of faith.
We hope you'll join us for the rest of the season as we hear from our other honored subjects who have made an impact on the Atlanta LGBTQ community. If this is your first podcast episode with us, welcome. We're so glad you tuned in. We invite you to listen back to our previous episodes with Dee Shambly, Grant Henry, and Senator Kim Jackson. If you enjoyed this podcast and you believe in preserving and sharing Southern LGBTQ history, we invite you to support the Out Down South podcast and the rest of the work we are doing with the Atlanta LGBTQ History Project by going to our website at atlantalgbtqhistoryproject.org and clicking the donate button. This podcast is supported by a grant from Georgia Humanities. We are also grateful for our podcast partners, Wussy Mag, the LGBTQ Plus Institute at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and the Special Collections and Archives at Georgia State University Library, where all of the oral histories from this project will be archived. Our Out Down South exhibit is currently up at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. You can learn more about our exhibit by visiting atlantalgbtqhistoryproject.org slash exhibit. The Out Down South podcast is made possible by the hard work of an amazing team of LGBTQ plus creators co-founders of the project, John Dean and Rachel Ward, and our amazing interns, Alyssa Zhang, Alex Campo, and Hunter Buhite. And I have to give a special shout out to Rachel for a great job editing these last couple episodes. Ah, thank you, Sam. I am not a natural editor, but I have gained a new skill thanks to Outdown South. You've been doing great. <laughs> Appreciate it. If you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get them. This helps other queer history lovers find us. If you didn't like it, don't worry about it. You can find all our episodes and more information about the project on our website at atlantalgbtqhistoryproject.org. Until next time. Bye, y'all.